0: Open up your Bibles, if you've got them, uh, to John's Gospel. We're still walking verse by verse through John's Gospel. Open it up to chapter 7 uh, and verse 14. Uh, We're just going to keep rolling through this together. And what we're going to do today, we've got quite a few verses to get through, so uh, we're just going to walk through it verse by verse by verse together. We're going to stop At certain points along the way, uh, and just try to pick out some of the key truths that God is saying uh, in these verses and apply it to our lives, and it's gonna be uh, great. So, why don't I just pray really quick? Why don't you pray with me as we jump into this? Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that you've not left us uh, to our own devices. Uh, to stumble through this life without wisdom, without guidance. You've given us your word in the Bible, and you've given us your spirit. And so I just ask in your name this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, speak to us very tangibly through your word, that you would give us open hearts, Lord, open minds, uh, to hear what you want to say to us and to actually do it, to actually leave here changed because of who you are and what you've done. Show us what we need to hear from you this morning, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So John chapter 7 and verse 14, just to set the context, tell you a little story. Uh, 2016, I was doing some traveling. I was in the south of India in a city called Bangalore. Uh, I was visiting my mom, who's awesome. She was working there uh, for a year. So I thought, hey, I'll go spend a month and hang out in India. That would be fun. Uh, So I went and did that. And right when I got in, um, some local guys, they were really nice uh, they decided to hey let 's show this guy around this Canadian fella he looks lost let 's take him out for lunch uh, and so this group of Indian guys they were really sweet. They took me out uh, to what was supposed to be just a, a really good local spot, really good food it 's one of the best known uh, restaurants uh, in the town, uh, the part that we were staying in and so I thought this is this is awesome and if you don 't know India, uh, they are crazy about cricket. they love their cricket, uh, the sport, not the insect and They just, they love it. They're all about it. And these guys are talking to me about cricket. I don't know anything about cricket, not a single thing. Uh, But we go to this restaurant and it's awesome. And we're having food, we're having curry, we're having local dishes, non bread. It's amazing. Uh, And then some weird stuff started to happen where um, I'm the only Caucasian person in this entire restaurant. Uh, But people start coming over uh, and asking if they can get a photo with me. And they start talking to me and like, treating me really, really nice. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm cool in India. Awesome. And uh, weirder stuff started happening. They started bringing us free food, free non bread. I'm like, okay, sweet. Wow, these people are, are amazing. I get up. I'm trying to find the bathroom. Some people look at me. They come over and, hey, can we get a picture? Can we get a photo? Uh, guys start coming out of the kitchen Uh, and wanting photos with me. And the owner of the restaurant comes out and he goes, we are so glad that you are here joining us at our restaurant. And I'm going, wow, I'm cool in India, right? And uh, I'm just, this keeps happening, this weird stuff. People keep coming over and I'm taking like a million selfies with people uh, and it's awesome. And then eventually uh, a couple of the English speaking guys I'm hanging out with, they're like, you look exactly like this famous Australian cricket player and they think you're him. And so I've been going for like an hour, just chatting with people, taking photos like a celebrity in this place. And I am in so deep at this point that I can't like, I just rolled with it. Like I didn't judge me if you want, but I didn't say anything. And then they start asking me if I can come out and like go to like cricket practice with them and like stuff like this. And I'm just like, I got a press conference. I got a bail. Sorry guys and I you know, I jump in my little tuck tuck and <laughs> scoot off. Uh, but the point is, who they believed that I was drastically changed how they responded to me, right? Who they believed that I was changed how they responded to me. And it's the same thing with Jesus. At this point in the story, in the gospel of John, Jesus has been going around, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been doing miracles, fed 5,000 people, walked on water, doing all these things and what it has done in the Jewish community has created this confusion and this disagreement and actually quite a bit of angst and anger about who Jesus is who is he they start to chat among themselves is this Jesus really the messiah the christ that we've been waiting for is he a crazy person is he demon possessed is he just another prophet is he another good moral teacher who is Jesus? And there's quite a bit of grumbling. The tension is starting to build about who Jesus is. And this is actually the question that so many of us are asking today. It's the same dichotomy. Is Jesus true or is he not true? Is he a false prophet? It's this question that we all have to answer, right? And it's this massively important question because all of life and what we do and who we are and our eternity hangs in the balance with the answer to this question. Who do we say that Jesus is. Who is Jesus? right? And Jesus, in this passage, in this conversation that he has at the Feast of Booze with the Jewish uh, authorities, he's going to show us that despite what we might think about him, despite what they think about him or don't think about him, Jesus is not just another moral teacher. He didn't come just to lay down some good life lessons that we can you know, take it or leave it. He didn't come just to create a holy little huddle of self-righteous people who can gather and have some tea and biscuits and be best friends and think that they're better than the world and point fingers at people, right? None of that. Jesus came as the Lord, the God of the cosmos, who is equal with God. We read John 1, 1 right, in the beginning, The word was with God and he was God. And then he came to the world that he made to the people that he loves. The word became flesh and dwelt among us to show us the goodness and the power and the glory of God. And Jesus came not to just lay down some good teachings, not to just be a good moral guy for us to follow as an example. He came to seek and to save the lost to call his people back to himself to direct our affections and our attention to the glory and the praise and the honor and the worship of God. He came to gather a people to himself, right? To save the world, to give his life and to die for the sins of the world and to call us, to call our our eyes to lift our vision up to a greater mission, a greater vision than just living for ourselves, but now to live for the glory and the honor and the praise and the exaltation of God to call us into his great mission. Right? And Jesus, in this passage, he's going he's to plead with us. He's going he's to be just speaking with passion and with urgency, giving us a clear and a stern warning, but also a warm and a beautiful invitation that we need to step into. We need to decide, is Jesus for real? Is he legit? Is he true? Because our response to that determines everything. It's the most important decision we could possibly make. Let's jump into the passage, verse 14. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? right? So the feast, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up. So what's this feast? It's the feast of booze. We talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, this was uh, also called the feast of tents or tabernacles. Okay. And what uh, this was, was every uh, Jewish male uh, within 20 miles of Judea was, was required to come to this festival. And what it was is a big, massive uh, celebration of God's provision for Uh, the Israelites in the wilderness, right? After he delivered them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, this festival was to celebrate that God uh, provided miraculously for them uh, manna from heaven, bread from heaven, and water out of a rock. They were celebrating that. And what they would do is really cool. uh, Everybody would just stay in tents everywhere. So there'd just be a sea of tents all over the buildings, all over the grass, everywhere. Picture like ah, uh, like Sasquatch Music Festival or like Shambhala, um, but with better music and, uh, and more Christian things. Okay. But this was tense everywhere, uh, because what was happening was people were uh, required to stay in tents so that they could sleep under the stars and look up at the stars and be reminded of the God of the universe who is with them and who provided for them in the wilderness. Right. And we, uh, we heard in our passage last week, uh, That at the time, because of all the grumbling about Jesus and who he is, Jesus' brothers want Jesus to go up at the start of the feast, right? To show everybody who he is, to prove himself, basically, right? But Jesus doesn't go at the start of the feast, because we learned last week, Jesus is God. He's not a monkey that will dance for us when we want him to. He doesn't jump through hoops for us. He's not just somebody we can call on to do whatever we want him to do. He is the Lord of the universe, and he shows up when he wants to show up, and he does what he wants to do. And sometimes he does that in our lives, in the world, in unexpected ways, in ways that we wouldn't necessarily want or ask for. But he is God, and he works on his own timing. And so he comes up uh, to the festival in the middle of the feast, right? And what did we read? He began teaching, right? So Jesus shows up midway through the festival, And what would happen at the festival is every single day, uh, the people would sing psalms, and they would march up to the temple, which was the center, right, of Jewish uh, culture and religion and worship. So they would sing psalms, march up to the temple, and every day they would hear teaching from a rabbi about the word of God. And so Jesus puts himself right in the center of Jewish religion and culture and worship, and he stands up at the temple, and he begins teaching And the Jews, verse 15, therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And so Jesus begins teaching in the temple, and the people are blown away because his teaching has authority, and it has power, and has beauty and clarity. But they're saying Jesus has never studied, right? And so the custom at the time for rabbis who were teaching in the temple was that they would have to apprentice and study under another rabbi or several rabbis throughout their lifetime, and then they would quote those rabbis when they got up to teach. So it would be just passed on wisdom from rabbi to rabbi to rabbi. So they're going, well, this Jesus never studied under a rabbi. How is it that his teaching has such power and such authority, right? He's not quoting any other rabbi. What is Jesus answer? Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And this is the first point. If you're taking notes, Jesus' teaching isn't just good. It's from God. Jesus clarifies right off the bat that he is not just another rabbi, not just another prophet, not just another teacher like the ones of his day. He's not quoting another rabbi. He's quoting God right? This teaching is from the Father. It's from God. What I'm telling you, what I'm downloading for you is directly from God the Father, and that's where the authority and the power and the clarity comes from, right? And that's why every single week, that's what we do here, right? Everything that we do in our community groups, everything we do uh, on a Sunday morning in our own devotional lives is based off of the authority of the Bible, of the Word of God, because what Jesus said and what he did and the eyewitness accounts Of Jesus teaching and his life are not just another man's opinion. We believe that it's actually the words of God inspired by the spirit of God. And because of that, they carry a very unique power and authority and weight in our lives, right? Because the weight that we give something, the authority that we give something in our life hinges upon who the teacher is, who the person speaking is, right? And sometimes I think that we we, uh, we listen to the words of Jesus and we go to the words of Scripture very casually in the same way that we might go to like a podcast or a YouTube video or some other teacher or a book, whatever that we read, right? Like this week, you know, I'll, I'll get a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Jordan Peterson, a little bit of Joe Rogan, a little bit of CNN, whatever your, you know, outlet of choice is, right? But if Jesus' teaching is more than just man's teaching, it's actually from God, it carries with it an authority that needs to supersede all other authorities. And that's why we give it this weight in our lives. These are the words of God, right? Because if it's just another teacher, if it's just another podcaster, another prophet, even another preacher, right? Their words, we're not going to take everything that they say to heart. We're going to pick and choose and take and leave what we like and what we think is good. And we're going to leave the stuff that we think is bad with Jesus. He is speaking to us the words of God, and so that needs to carry a weight and an authority in our lives unlike any other source, right? And if it is the words of God, we're going to listen to the words of God. We're going to read it. We're going to hear it and actually do our best to do what it says because if this is God speaking to us, right, then even if it doesn't make sense to us or even if we don't feel like it or it's not convenient for us, God knows better than we do. Right? Jesus' words are not just good, they're from God. The second point, if you're taking notes, is Jesus comes to align our will with God's will. Look at verse 17 and 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, Jesus says, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. What did Jesus just say in verse 17? If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. What did Jesus just say? He just said that we will not be able to see Jesus for who he is, the power and the beauty and the authority that he has in our lives until we align our hearts, our will with the heart of God of God. To put it another way, uh, John Piper said this, if you want to test whether your faith in God is actually real and genuine and authentic, ask yourself the question, has my will changed? Right? Has there been a fundamental change in, in not just what I know but in what I want to do with my life, in my core desires, what I want to do uh, with my life, my affections, my heart, my will, what do I love? Have my affections actually changed and has my will now aligned with God's will where the primary thing that I want to do in my life is God's will for my life and no longer my will. It's a, a fundamental change that happens when God gets a hold of our heart where we now live for God exaltation rather than self-exaltation, right? Am I now living for the glory of God rather than the glory of self? Have uh, had the chains of my, my addiction to self-glorification been broken and am I now living for the will and the glory of of Jesus. That's what he says. What does it mean, right? Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. It's about glory. Whose glory are we chasing? Whose glory are we seeking? This is a story uh, in, in my life too. When I became a Christian as a teenager, uh, I gave my life to Jesus. He saved me. I, I repented of my sins and I turned to him, but there was still this piece where I didn't understand that my will, now needed to align with God's will. I still wanted to chase my own glory, chase my own gratification, live the life that I wanted to live and just become a Christianized version of myself rather than saying, okay, Lord, your will be done. Right, that played out in a lot of different ways. I, uh, I used to be in a band um, and uh, in high school and, in, and you can picture what a high school band is like, <laughs> not good, but my aspiration was to become a famous a uh, musician. We were going to make it uh, as a band. We started playing little shows around. Started touring around a little bit. Things started to build, and then uh, we were on this bill one day. We got a call from uh, from the, the venue manager, and and that was it, man. This was this was the big break. He's like, "Do you want to open for Carly Rae Jepsen?" And if you don't know who that is, she had one hit on the radio. It's called "Call Me Maybe." All the other boys tried to chase me, but here's my number. So call me maybe. No? Yeah. That's a hit, right? So they asked us to open for Carly Rae. And I'm like, "This man, this is it. And this was my aspiration. I was going to be a rock star. I was going to be partying with Carly Rae. And the mentality that I had was, God, you can come along. Right? I'll have a little sidecar on the side that God can sit in. And I'll chase my own glory. I'll get as big as I can. I'll get the money. I'll get the fame. I'll get people's eyes on me. Thinking that I'm cool. Thinking that I'm good. And God, maybe I'll give you a little bit of glory. Right? Maybe, maybe I'll give you a little shout out from the stage once in a while or something. Right? And whatever the thing is for you, I think we can have this mentality where yeah, we think we're, we're in the will of God, we think we're living for the Lord, but really, if we really dig down into it and we're being honest, we really just want to live out our will for our life and do what we want to do and get glory for ourselves and we'll, we'll give God a little piece of it, right? Jesus is saying, no. This is how you know you're legit, Are you living for the will of God? Are you living for the glory of God in your life? Has that fundamental change happened? Guys, it's really easy in religion. It's really easy in Christianity to just clean up some things on the outside, right? To start doing some things different, to start trying to live a little bit more morally, a little bit better, a little bit kinder, a little bit nicer. The reality that Jesus is laying down for us is that he didn't come to just make better, more cleaned up, nicer people. He came to make new creations. He came to redeem us and give us a new heart that now beats for his will and his glory and his exaltation rather than the glory of ourselves. And it's not easy, right? It is not easy to die to our addiction to self-glorification. Jesus knows that. That's why he said in chapter 3, right, to Nicodemus, what must you do? You need to be born again, Right? We are born sinful. We are born prideful. We are born selfish. Martin Luther said, turned in on ourselves naturally. That's why we need to be born again. Right? Jesus didn't come to just clean us up and make us look better and neater on the outside. He came to make us brand new. And we know that that's happened if our heart starts to beat for the will and for the glory and the exaltation of God. Right? What's the other piece of this? What does Jesus say in verse, in verse 17? If anyone's will is to do God's will, right? This is crazy. If you look at it, look at it. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. So that's actually pretty crazy, right? Jesus is saying that first, we, we don't need to know more stuff first, right? We don't need to gain more knowledge. We don't need to know first. First, what we need to do is align our will to God's will And then what will follow is knowing, right? So Jesus just said that if we actually want to do the will of God and we start trying to actually do it, we put his word and his commands and his teachings into action and it actually starts to live in our lives, then we'll start to know. His teaching will start to become clearer and clearer. His will will start to become clearer and clearer. But we got to start moving. We got to actually want to do the will of God not just know the will of God, we need to actually want to do it. And so there's this piece of it where it's, do you actually want to do? Is your desire to actually live out the will of God, to actually do something, to not just know more things, right? Christianity is not only about doctrine, Right? It's not only about knowing more things intellectually, it's having our hearts set on fire and our hands actually wanting to go and do, to move our feet, leading us by the Spirit out into the world to actually do and accomplish God's will, not just know it. Right? Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be wise James, the brother of Jesus, also said, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Right. Look down to the end of that passage. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Right. James also said at another point that faith without works is actually dead right? It has to be more than doctrine and theology and knowing more about God and knowing more about the will of God. At some point, guys, it needs to go from here to here and to here to actually live it out and to do it, right? Theology and doctrine and and learning and knowledge of the Bible, that is all amazing. I'll never say anything bad about doctrine and theology. I love theology. That's why I did three years uh, full-time, just devoted to it. That's why I I learned Greek. I sat in a little studio apartment in Sydney while all my friends were surfing, and I memorized Greek verbs. That's how much I love theology, right? But theology and doctrine, as as amazing as they are, and we need it, we need to grow, grow and go deeper in that. We really, really do. But amazing as that is, in itself, it's not necessarily going to lead to being a more devoted, fired up, passionate, Uh, actually in the world follower of Jesus, a more actual disciple, right? It needs to go from the head to the heart to the hands. We need to actually live it out. And I think some of us, we think before we actually start living out the will of God and actually doing things uh, that he wants us to do, we just need to know more. We just need to be more informed. We just need to learn more. Some of us are sitting and we're thinking, you know, while we're on the topic of the will of God, we're thinking and we're asking God, what is your will Uh, for my life? What is your will for this situation? Do you want me to date this person? Do you want me to marry this person? Do you want me to take this job, leave this job? Do you want me to move to this place, do this, do that? And we think that uh, before we make a move and actually do something, we want God to show us the whole plan, right? We want want him to show us the whole, this is how it's all going to play out. This is every step of the way. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. He's going to do that. And then we go, okay, God, if you show me that, then I'll make a move. And what Jesus just said is start to do the will of God, want to do the will of God and start to do it. And his truth, his knowledge, his clarity will come to you. It will follow, but we need to start to move, right? That's why David in one of the Psalms, he said, your word, God, is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path, right? Think about that. A lamp to your feet. It's lighting up maybe a foot or two or a few feet in front of you. But you're not going to know what's ahead and what's ahead and what's ahead until you start stepping forward, right? One step at a time. And the reality is that, is that knowing and growth in faith sometimes follows doing and obedience. Sometimes we need to just start by acting. Start with obedience. Start by do it, doing the will of God, believing it and trying to actually put it into action. Right? And I don't think God usually— your experience might be different— But for me, God usually doesn't show me every step of how something is going to play out before it happens, right? Has that ever happened to you? Let me know if it has. That's cool. Never happened for me, right? What do we do? God has given us a brain. He's given us an an intellect, right? He's given us the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. He's given you people around you, right? So what do we do? We take what God has given us. We take the knowledge and the wisdom that we do have. We take the word of God, right? We seek wise counsel of the people around us. We get other opinions. We pray. We pray. We pray. James says, ask God for wisdom and he is glad to give it to you, right? So we seek counsel. We pray. We seek the word of God, but then at some point we need to make a decision and start to move and it's messy and we start to fumble through it, but we need to start to move. We need to take one step of faith and then another step of faith. And Jesus is saying, watch as you do that. Watch how God is there for you, picks you up when you fall and pushes you forward again. Watch how he, even when you mess it up and make the wrong call, he picks you up and makes something good out of it, but he's with you. He just says, start moving. Start to try and actually apply what you have and do the will of God. Right? And what does the Bible say? The Bible actually tells us pretty directly what God's will is for our lives sometimes. It doesn't give us specifics. You know, date Timmy. Don't date Johnny. You know, move here, don't move there. It doesn't say that stuff. It's not specific to us, but what does it say? What are, I'll just, I've got a list of a few things that are the direct will of God for your life in the Bible. Believe in Jesus and the gospel and keep on believing. That's the will of God. Remain in Jesus because apart from him, you can do nothing. So remain in him. Don't be afraid because God is with you wherever you go. Tell the world about the grace and the glory and the goodness of God. Give thanks in every circumstance. This is the will of God, First Thessalonians says. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. This is the will of God. Do good. Okay, just do good. There's the will of God for you. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Speak the truth to your neighbor. Be angry and don't sin. Forgive one another as Christ forgave you. Work hard. Do honest work. Love your wife. Lay down your life for her. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. There's a million other things that are the direct will of God for your life, In the Bible, are you applying those things? Are you applying the wisdom that God's given you? Are you seeking wise counsel? Are you asking him for more wisdom? Start making a decision. Start taking a step of faith, one step at a time. And you watch how God grows you. You watch how uh, he gives you knowledge as you start to move forward. You watch how his word and his spirit start to illuminate your path as you start to move. Right, we gotta keep moving. Verse 19, this is the next point. God gave us laws, his laws for our flourishing and for his glory. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, Jesus says to these people, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So Jesus is pointing out uh, to these Jewish authorities, uh, he's reminding them, Moses gave you the law, right, which is the commands of God for how the Jewish people were to live in the world, right? It's the Ten Commandments, and then it's a lot of other laws that were added, uh, primarily in the first five books of the Old Testament, Right? And it's how God's people were supposed to live in the land. And it's a good thing. It guides them. It shows them how to live. It shows them how to uh, witness the glory of God to the neighboring nations. It's good. It's good. It's good. But eventually, for the Jewish people, the religious zealous people, it becomes a badge of honor. Right? How good can I keep the law? God will love me more if I keep the law better. And what Jesus does here is he points out their hypocrisy and the fact that they've missed the point of what the law is. God's laws, God's rules, God's commands were given for his glory and for the flourishing of us and our neighbors. They were not ever given to us to be a badge of honor to wear so we can get up on our high horse and be self-righteous and point at other people and how bad they are at keeping the law, right? The law was never meant to be a baseball bat that we can use to beat people down and shame them, right? The law is never supposed to be a thing that we use to make ourselves feel better about ourselves because the whole point of the law the New Testament, the whole New Testament, Galatians read it. It teaches us the point of the law is not so we can feel better about ourselves. The point of the law is that none of us can actually keep it. And then eventually, once we realize that, and we realize that God doesn't expect us to keep it, he knows that we can't, it drives us to the feet of Jesus because he's the one, the only one who kept the law perfectly for us on our behalf, right? We can't do it. That's the whole point. Right? These Jewish people, these religious people, we can do the same thing with our Christianity and even with our Bible knowledge, even with our, all of the, the traditions and the things that we do, we can start to wear them as a badge of honor right? and point the finger and we can actually get so blind like these, these Jewish authorities, we can get so blind and unaware thinking that we are good and that everybody else is bad and everybody else is wrong. And Jesus just points that out, that hypocrisy, the law of God is meant to bring humility because we realize we can't keep the law perfectly. It's not meant to bring about hypocrisy and judgment on other people, right? And it can actually become just another way of keeping the law, being good Christian people who watch certain movies and don't watch certain movies and don't swear and don't smoke and don't drink and all the other things that we think we're not supposed to do. That can actually, we can lose the heart of that, which is to honor God and to love other people better. We can lose the heart of that and we can start to use that as actually just another cheap and sneaky way of self-exaltation, of self-glorification, right? Just another sneaky way to say, hey, everybody, look at me. Look how good I am, right? And so Jesus' point is they want to they arrest him and kill him for what he's saying, the claims that he's making, that he's equal with God. Uh, they also are mad that in chapter 5, uh, he healed a man on the Sabbath, And the Jewish authorities were mad about that because you weren't supposed to do anything that resembled work on the Sabbath. That broke the law of Moses. But Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy saying, it's actually also against the law of Moses to kill an innocent man. And that's what you're trying to do to me. So you're actually so caught up in your law keeping that you don't even realize you're also breaking the law. And his point is that nobody keeps the law perfectly. Nobody, not a single one of us. And so I think the question for us Uh, a woman called Clarice J. Martin put this really well. She said, perhaps instead of reading the Bible to assure ourselves that we are right, we should read it to discover where we have not been listening. Right? Do you read scripture? Do you read this? And the whole time you're thinking about other people and what they're doing or not doing? Right? Are you letting this be a mirror that God holds up and shows you where you're not listening? where you need to be convicted. And it's not always conviction. It's not always sad and and whatever. Sometimes it's encouragement. But are you letting God speak to you through this? Or are you just looking at this as a way to start beating people over the head with it? Right? And then the crowd responds. Let's keep moving. Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So they think Jesus is crazy or possessed or something. They don't really understand the situation. And then Jesus just keeps going on, and he he points out further their hypocrisy and, and just kind of rips apart their argument here. Look what he says in verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus' whole argument there is on the Sabbath, so this is what happened uh, with the Jewish people. They were commanded in the law of Moses, uh, every male, uh, Jewish male baby that was born, they would have to circumcise uh, that baby on the eighth day of his life, and they would do it uh, whether or not it landed on the Sabbath or not. So sometimes, inevitably, the circumcision would land on the Sabbath, and they would still do it even though they weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. They would still mutilate a baby's flesh. And Jesus' whole point is, okay, so there are some things that you are willing to compromise. You're willing to circumcise a child, mutilate a child's flesh on the Sabbath in order to keep your laws, but I'm not allowed to heal a man who has been down on a mat, unable to walk, sick, sitting in his own filth, ostracized by the community, just considered a nothing and nobody who has no hope. I'm not allowed to go and heal that man's whole body. But you're allowed to circumcise a baby on the Sabbath, but I'm not allowed to go and make a whole man's body well. Right? And what he's saying is you have completely, in your religiosity and your obsession with law-keeping, you've actually missed the entire spirit of the law. You're trying to keep the letter of the law, but you've missed the spirit of the law, which is that the law was given, what, to love God and to love neighbor. Jesus says, Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The whole law exists for God's glory and for human flourishing, right? God doesn't give us laws and rules in order to make other people feel like garbage about themselves, and he doesn't give them to us so we can feel proud of ourselves and good about ourselves, and he also doesn't give us laws to ruin our fun and to take anything away from us right? Sometimes we can think that. I don't want to give my life to Jesus. I'll have to give up certain things. And the reality is that if he is actually God, if he is who he says he is, then he knows better what is good for us and what is good for the world than we do, right? Like the arrogance that we have, right? To know what God has told us he wants us to do and not do with our lives for our own good and the good of the world. And to say, nah, no, thanks God. I think I know better than you, right? Like how crazy, how ridiculous is that? Right? The law is given for healing. It's given for wholeness. Jesus demonstrated that. So he actually didn't break the law by healing the man. He actually upheld what the law was supposed to be about, which was to bring healing, to bring wholeness, to bring life. Right? In verse 24, he says, don't judge on appearances, judge rightly. Right? That does not mean that there's no good or bad, right or wrong Good or evil, it doesn't mean that we don't need to be called out sometimes. Accountability is a beautiful thing, man. When I uh, first became a Christian, I wish I had you know good men and women to pull my head and give me a bit of a smack and tell me that I, I need to figure it out, right? Sometimes that's a good thing, we need that. That's not what Jesus is saying, but he's saying be careful about judging by appearance because God judges the heart, right? What is he saying? He's saying be very careful about judging people off of surface level things, things that you see on the surface, sins that you see that they're doing, evil things, bad things you think that they're doing when you have no idea what their story is, what their situation is, what they do, where they came from, right? Sometimes we can step in with no context, not even knowing somebody or knowing their heart. And we can step into a situation where God is actually doing something in their life. He's moving them. From here to here, he's doing a healing and a saving work in their life, but all we see is where they're at right now, and we think that they should be further along, right? And so we get upset about it, and we point out their sin and how bad they are. Jesus is saying, be very careful about doing that, right? You don't know what God is doing in that person's life. It's called gradual sanctification, right? Where God saves us, and he sets us apart and he starts us on this road, on this process of making us like him, of aligning our will with his will, our heart with his heart. But it's, it's messy, man. It's step-by-step. Step. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's mistakes. Sometimes it's backsliding, man. If you would have seen me in the first couple years that I became a Christian, some of you might've, you would have written me off. I was a mess, right? But God was doing something there. Right? Be very careful about stepping in and judging somebody off of where they're at right now rather than where God is taking them, what he's doing in their life. Right? We are the only people, Right, the church, we are the only people that can celebrate the fact that we are all a mess. Isn't that good news? We're all a mess. Every single one of us is in process. Not a single one of us has this thing figured out perfectly. Right, But we trust and we know that he who began a good work in us will bring it through to completion. God is doing something. Don't step in and mess up the process by judging by appearance. We need to keep moving really quickly. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Look at that word in, in, uh, in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed. Look at that word, proclaimed right? This means, this is uh, actually a really emphatic word. This means in the Greek, it means he cried out. He shouted with emotion, with passion. Jesus doesn't do that super often. The Times he does it, we need to pay attention. There's only one word in the Greek that's ever used that's actually more emphatic and more passionate. And the only time that it's used is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. So he's standing up here in the temple. And what does he say? You think you know where I'm from, you know about me, but actually you don't know where I truly come from, which is from the Father. And you think you know me, you think you know about me, but you don't know what I actually came to do and who I actually am, which is the God of the universe who came to live and lay down my life and die for the sins of the world, then go back to the Father and make a way for you to be in relationship with him, to know him. You don't know that. You think you know about me? You know things about me? right? And this is what what Jesus is talking about. This is what the the leaders were talking about. They think they know Jesus, right? And the myth at the time was that if he, somebody really is the Christ, the Messiah that they're waiting for, they know that he'll be born in Bethlehem, but they believe that after that, he would disappear somewhere secret where nobody knew where he was. And then at the right appointed time, he would just appear out of nowhere and nobody would have any clue. And they're saying, we know where Jesus comes from. He was born and raised, uh, he was born in Bethlehem and he was raised in Nazareth. We know that his parents are Mary and Joseph. We know that he was a carpenter. He had a job, right? Not an impressive job. We know where this guy comes from. He can't be the Christ. Jesus says, you don't know where I actually come from. The father from heaven sent down to you. And th- these words are haunting. And this is why Jesus proclaims it. Right? He says, you don't know him. Him you don't know him. You know things about me, but you don't know God. And this is the danger, guys. We can know so much about God. We can know so much about Jesus, right? We can, we can read this. We can know things about him, but that's different than knowing him, right? There's a guy called J.I. Packer. He's one of the, the most legendary theologians out there. He said this, There is a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. There's a difference, right? If you ask me if I know my wife, and then my answer was, yeah, she's 5'1", She has brown hair, brown eyes, right? She's from Sydney. She has a weird accent, right? She has a PhD from the University of Sydney. You'd be like, do you know your wife? Because those are a bunch of facts about her. Do you you know your wife? Then what if I said, you know, yeah, she likes, you know, she wants me to get up in the morning and the first thing I'm supposed to do is to make her a flat white with a double shot of espresso and a little bit of foam and cocoa sprinkles on the top. Right, and I'm not supposed to eat popcorn in our bed and open tuna cans and then forget that I open them to eat them and then leave them lying around the house? Right, That's what I'm supposed to do. No. Do I know her? Yes. It's not about knowing about her. It's not about knowing what she wants me to do for her. Right? If you ask me if I know my wife, I'd say, yeah, I know what it's like to hold her, to dance with her on our wedding day, right? to laugh, And joke about stupid, ridiculous inside jokes that only we have together. Right? I know what it's like to cry and to sob like a little baby in her arms when my grandfather died last year. Right? I know what it's like to go to sleep with her and wake up with her. To do life with her. I love her. I would die for her in a second. I know her. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Jesus says, I never came so that you could just know some facts about me, know some facts about God. This is about actually knowing him in relationship. There's an intimacy. There's a love. Have our affections, our loves actually changed so that we cherish Jesus. He says, you know about me, but you don't know God. You need to know God, that's the promise. That is the invitation for every single one of us to actually know him, right? And then verse 30 to 32. So they were seeking to arrest him. They've had enough. Jesus is no longer just a, just a, a lawbreaker, a Sabbath breaker. Now he's a blasphemer because he's claiming to be equal with God the Father. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Seven times in John's Gospel, we hear about the hour. This is the hour of Jesus' death, his crucifixion. His hour had not yet come. God is sovereign even over the hour that Jesus would die. It wasn't his hour yet, so they don't lay a hand on him. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering, these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot Come. This is where where Jesus lands it. Some of the people start to believe, right? The religious authorities, they don't like that, so they, they seek to arrest Jesus and bring him away, but some people are starting to believe. And it's, like I said, it's the same dichotomy that we are still faced with today, the same decision that we are still faced with today. Either Jesus was really the son of God like he claimed to be, his teaching is really of God and the authority of God, or he is a crazy person, right? Or he is leading people astray. It's one of the two, right? He can't be a good teacher. He can't be just a moral guy, somebody that we can follow. It's either he's God or he is a crazy person or he's worse than that. He's possessed by a demon because he's leading people astray, right? C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that, right? Don't, Don't give any patronizing nonsense about him being a good moral teacher. Jesus has not left that option open to us. Right? He's either God like he said he is, or he's not. And the invitation is patient, but it is urgent. We read in verse 33 to 36, Jesus said, right, I'm with you now for a short time, but in a while I'm going away, back to the Father. In six months from this time of this story, Jesus is going to walk up the hill carrying that cross. Right? He's going to go to his death. He's going to be crucified on a Roman torture device for the sins of the world. He's going to die. He's going to be buried And he's going to miraculously rise to life on the third day to prove that he was God. He was who he said he was. And then he's going to return to the father and make a place for every single person that will put their faith and their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Right? He is so good. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? Anyone who believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord and confesses with their mouth will be saved and they will join him. They'll sit at the right hand of the Father with him because of what he has done. Not because of how good we are, but because of what he has done. But look at the urgency. I'm going to go away. I'm with you now, but there's going to be a time where you seek me and you cannot find me. Right, And I think, man, there are these times when God breaks through the fog of our lives, of our minds. He breaks through the clouds, and he rattles us, and he shakes us up, and he speaks to us. We hear his voice. We feel his presence through the word, through preaching, through people in our lives, whatever. He breaks through. But then we think we have so much time. We think we have so much time. We just, Let me go back to sleep. Let me be comfortably numb. Right, I'll deal with that later if Jesus is really true, okay, I know it now. I'll deal with that down the road, right? Maybe I'll make a deathbed confession. Maybe I'll just put my trust in him right before I go. Man, we have no idea how much time we have. The Bible says life is a vapor. It's a mist. We are here today and gone tomorrow. We don't even know if you'll have a deathbed. If you do, you don't know if you'll be in a right mind when you're on it right? And if we're a Christian, we're walking with God, there are things, there are sins, there are things about our lives, habits that God's calling us to put away, to put to death. And we just think, no, I'll deal with that later. I've got all the time in the world. No. Jesus is saying, there's a time where you'll seek me and you will not find me. Man, it's like ice. Like the longer it freezes, the harder it gets, right? A root, the deeper it grows and the longer it grows, the harder it is to dig out of the ground. Don't leave it. Don't sit in it. That sin that's choking you out, destroying your love for people and your love for God, it's poisoning you. Don't sit in it any longer. Don't feed it. Don't let it grow and strengthen because if if you do that, there, there could be a time when you just keep going and you keep going and your heart becomes so hardened that you're unable to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. No, go to him now. Receive him now. While well, he's still there, if beauty and truth are still calling to you, if you can still hear his voice, go to him now. Put your faith and your trust in him. Go to him for healing, for restoration. As we sing, as we take communion now, just, can I just encourage you guys, don't, don't rush this. Don't run off afterwards. Stick around. Man, what's your next step? What's that next step of faith for you? Maybe you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time. Receive his forgiveness for your sins. Be washed clean. Move from light to darkness, death to life. Right? Maybe your next step is obedience. You need to get baptized. You need to make that public declaration that I'm now living for the glory of God. I'm in. Right? We're doing baptisms on Easter Sunday. We would love to baptize you. Maybe it's a sin, something that you need to put away, something you've been playing with. And it's time to put it to death. Maybe it's hypocrisy and resentment. You need to let go of whatever. Speak to God. Hear God's voice. Actually deal with it. Okay, and I'm going to stick around after, and maybe some other people can stick around. I don't know, but man, don't run off. I would love to chat with you. I'd love to hear what's going on in your life. I would love to just pray with you. Just pray over your family. Pray over your life, your circumstances, whatever's going on. Let's actually heed the patient and the loving, but the urgent encouragement of Christ this morning. Okay, let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you gave us your law and your scriptures, not so that we can lord it over people, not so we can think we're better than people, but so that we can realize that not a single one of us keeps the law perfectly. And that is why we need your grace. Lord, would you help us, encourage us, push us to run to your feet, to your grace, to your mercy this morning, to receive that. Whatever it is, if there's sin, Lord, call it out on us right now. Help us to just lay it down at your feet, to stop playing with it, to put it to death. Lord, if we need to put our faith in you, step over that line of faith right now, Lord. Help us, give us the courage, the boldness to do that. If it's a decision we need to make, Lord, help us to take that next step of faith. Lord, knowing that you're with us, that you're leading us, guiding us. We want to be people that live for your glory, for your honor, for your fame. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.